365 Success app offers a simple daily tip for a more balanced life. 365 Success is a one-year plan over six levels where a new tip is displayed each day. The people behind 365 Success are academic and creative life hackers Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Graham Hughes and Marie O'Riordan. Discover 365 Success, available now in the App Store. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 41 of Purple Psychology. I'm Marie O'Riordan. Thank you for tuning in in 64 countries around the world. This podcast is brought to you by 365 Success app, 365 Success, all one word, in the App Store. Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, you're welcome. Thank you. We took a little bit of a podcast break because we were busy. Yeah, there's been a lot going on. It's been a fairly full-on start to the year. Even before that, it kind of got busy as well, which I was surprised by. But anyway, here we are. We're going to discuss, in fact, you are going to be very open about dyslexia and living as a dyslexic on a daily basis. And um, I think you've kind of been avoiding getting this deep on the subject. And uh, episode 41 is probably an apt time to get into it. What do you reckon? Yeah, I suppose so. Like, I've talked a lot about um, Asperger's syndrome and ADHD and auditory processing disorders and various other conditions, which, you know, I do kind of step into other people's shoes and talk about them. And I know that they have a huge amount of views on my YouTube channel um, and they get a huge amount of feedback. But I suppose I always present such a positive front for dyslexia. It's a real case of if I can do it, so can you. And so I haven't been willing up until now to talk about some of the more negative aspects of my life. Well, you have a platform right now, so I'm just giving you a gentle broad... Yeah, I, I suppose it, it goes back. I um I started Montessori school very young. Um, very quickly it became obvious to me, even by the age of four, that there was something wrong with me because I was that kid that was always put ahead. Basically, there was bigger rooms in the Montessori, and so for maths and geography and history and all the other topics, um, I was miles ahead and sped through all the exercises but I remember these stupid sandpaper letters and I would always end up back with the new group and the, the people much smaller than me to do these letters again and never actually get them. Um, and I, I had a Montessori teacher at the time in, in Ireland. I went to one of the first Montessori schools in Ireland in the middle of the city centre um, in a fantastic Georgian building. And she realised very quickly that there was something wrong. Um, my parents knew that it was hereditary. My, my dad is dyslexic as well. Um, he left school at 15. His um, sole focus has always been on, on having his own business. Um, that was very much his measure of success. Um, my mother left school at 16 for different reasons. She did better in school. But funnily enough, she can't spell even though she's an avid reader. But I, I think that's for slightly different reasons. So they were very aware that it was hereditary. So it came as no surprise when the Montessori teacher sent me for my first assessment. And I remember going and doing this full day of assessment, being absolutely flatlined and wrecked at the end of it. And it was it was a reasonably traumatic experience. I can even recall that at four because I went into this room and even though I had to draw these little pictures and do all of this stuff and the people were terribly nice, it was all the things that I couldn't do and that was the focus. And so 
Now when I meet little people and I watch them in front of me getting emotional because they can't do certain tasks for me, I know exactly what they're going through. Um, and my, my parents at the end of the day took me to see Lady and the Tramp in the cinema. Oh, lovely. <laughs> um, and that's my big association with that film. Um, and, you know, my parents presented my, um, my report to the local school thinking and you think like having been diagnosed at four that this would be give me a massive head start but actually the school didn't want to know about it they just basically told them to be good little people and go home and leave them to it um and so not much has changed nisha <laughs> well it, it's a subtle difference sorry i'm just you know me i'm the bazooka <laughs> yeah well it's a subtle difference now then they didn't want to know about it and it was like yeah whatever go away whereas now it's a bit the opposite extreme um, which I'll talk about in a minute again. So, you know, in, in class, like, I had the most resourceful techniques. I put so much effort into hiding this. Like, you know, as we went around and read in the class, I would work out the position of the person who was going to read my line and memorise it while they read it so that I could say it back. So for a long time, people didn't realise that I couldn't do it. Um, and we see this all the time in the dyslexic kids you work with. Yeah, like we, we all, and you know, there was, there's the pictures in the book and you make up the story to go with it. Um, it reminds me of the movie, because you mentioned Lady and the Tramp, and you know me, I'm a movie nut. Curly Sue. I haven't seen it. Oh my gosh. So there was this wonderful young actress, and yeah, she could memorise the big words, but then you ask her something tiny and she wouldn't be able to spell maybe cat or whatever it was. Yeah, the big words are easier to cope with than the small words because there's more bits to them. So you have more chance of working it out. Um, and that's that's even still the case for me. Um, so then I did my next assessment when I was about eight. And at that stage, like I was miles and miles behind, you know. And there's a lot of cards I still have where I made. And I would actually spell my name wrong and write my dad's name instead of mine even so it was you know like I really I, I couldn't even put my own name to paper um well you can still do that yeah well yeah I still I know I'm having a bad day when I spell my name wrong yeah, um, <laughs> yeah well you have that joke in the office but it's true <laughs> yeah it is very much um and and there is days that is more dyslexic than others. Like there's days where I will set the table wrong and put the cutlery on the wrong side, or I really struggle with my left and right and um yeah, whole orientation, you know. So there's definitely days that are that are more dyslexic, you know, and they'll, you know, start off in the bathroom and they'll start badly and I'll drop everything. And then you just whacked my hand there accidentally. I'm yeah. holding the yeah. microphone, so if there's a blip you'll know what that was. Yeah. Um so so yeah, so so by then I was miles behind. I did have a horrific teacher, a horrific experience. I'm not particularly going to go into that right now. Maybe I'll talk about it again. Um, but my parents, and, and it was like Jacqueline Hyde, at, at home I could do everything. I was massively artistic. I could cook for myself. I was quite happy spending a lot of time on my own and massive imagination. We didn't have a television. Um, I grew up quite differently. But everything was possible. Um, I started canoeing when I was eight. Do you want to talk about what that teacher said? No, I don't. Not right now. Okay. Because um, it's horrific. Yeah. So I understand if you don't want to go there. That's no, okay. No, That's I'm, okay. I'm like, not pushing. I'm not... Yeah. yeah. I, I will just say that the ages between six and eight were particularly traumatic. Um, um, you know, and they make me who I am, despite their best efforts. Um, so it, it, it was very kind of bizarre. And then um, 
my parents realised that um, computers would probably help me. So they bought me uh, a Commodore 64, I'm showing my age here. <laughs> and um, rather than just playing games on it, I actually learned how to program it. I would I would learn how to fly little balloons across the screen. And it's, it's really interesting because computer programming is one of the most natural spell checkers in the world. And even when I went on to do my PhD and learn a number of computer programming languages, it's quite interesting because you'll always get an error code and particularly for a certain line and you know you've done something slightly backwards. Mm, whereas when you're writing the biggest problem with spell checkers is that yeah they bring up all the words but they all look the bloody same it wasn't electronic but um i've probably spoken about this before but when we were very very young my mum worked with an encyclopedia company and one of those companies was uh, childcraft and the other was uh, world world book i think they're actually probably the same company but anyway world cup uh, world um World Book had something called a cyclo teacher. It was this plastic mechanical device where you put sheets, educational sheets into it and worksheets and you would click this mechanical thingy and it would ask you a question and you write in the spaces. And that was like my Commodore 64 without a chip. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I got an awful time because, you know, school wasn't very easy for me either, but I got an awful time from some people in my class because they thought that I had an advantage over them, even though, like, you know, I was way behind them. Yeah, so, so, so getting a computer was, was, was a big milestone, and then I joined um, a computer club in school, so I actually learned how to, co- how to program on a Commodore 64, a BBC, and the first Apple Macintosh, the first one, because uh, Apple Macintosh used a completely different software system. Um, so that was quite interesting. Wow. Um, I had an Apple Newton, which was a pile of... Anyway, um, so yes, yeah, so it 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 kind of it, it went from there, and I suppose my my parents realised that there was something wrong, and and I think this is one of the most um, difficult parts for my parents to understand, and for a lot of parents to understand, is that I never told them all the things that were going on in school and how bad it was, and um, and people can sit there and go like, why didn't you? And like I'm quite outspoken and I'm quite together, and I was. Um, I was a quite a, a confident kid in a lot of ways. I was, you know, I wasn't very loud, but I was reasonably confident and I was always very comfortable around adults. And so this seems like a very strange thing to do. Um, but the reality is, is that if an adult in a position of power tells you that there's something radically wrong with you and that it's all of your fault and is actually quite verbally and physically abusive to you in the situation you will actually believe them and so I believed that there was something wrong with me in school and so in school I was that one person and then because the teacher had set me up that way only one person in my whole class of 34 people would actually speak to me the rest of them carried through her behavior to the schoolyard. Sounds familiar it's pretty much the same boat yeah for different reasons. Um, and I actually blanked all of that time. Um, I moved to a new school, an Educate Together school. It was the second one ever formed in Dublin. It was a fantastic experience. I really put down my change in the world to the principal, Sally, and my teacher, Jim. And, but, you know, it's... Um, It's it's so bizarre to look, to look back at that time and, and look at the way that I was made to feel. Um, and, and do you see that with children now? 
Yes, all the time. And, and I think like, you know, I, I've relived all of the worst moments of my education through the people I work with. And in the first years that I opened the school, particularly the first 18 months, I relived every traumatic experience that I had from the age of five right through to my 20s through other people, you know, through the assessments they had through the experiences they had in school. And the most shocking one for me was when, you know, a little boy came in who was in the same school, but in the boys' school next door. And almost, not slightly short of 30 years later, he was going through the same experiences I went through, just subtly different in the same school. Uh, but the really random thing was that my dad had actually taught me how to do maths with cards and dominoes. And so when I started school, I could add, subtract, multiply and divide. And so I was massively ahead in maths. And I remember we had these little pink, purple cubes, you know, for maths. And I kept going on that there was more than 100 cubes in the thing because I was like, yeah, there's 100 around the sides. But what about all the ones inside? <laughs> so I was talking about the volume. And Is that 3D? More, you were yeah. getting into dimensions more than anything. Yeah, but I knew there was a volume to it mm. and that those weren't being counted. And... So because I was seen as such a problem case, when the teacher would go out and on, on sick leave, I would be deliberately put into the sixth class with the vice principal. And I actually really loved this because I could do the sixth class maths. And, you know, so I went from my own classroom where I could do nothing to a classroom where I could do maths four years ahead of me. It's incredible. Which, like... which, is, which, is, which is very bizarre. Um, yeah, well, I can't do maths to save my life, but then I see the mathematical, you know, the mathematician in you and the the physicist in you, and it's like, am I watching Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> um, but another film I haven't seen. Um, <laughs> but you know, so then I started in a new primary school, and Jim took me aside, and he basically said that the books that other people were doing in the room were stupid, and I was going to do something much better. When in reality, I was doing something much simpler. Um, and I suppose I learned how to read a certain amount, and I went to somebody outside. Um, and actually, uh, that that was the most hurtful thing for me because years later, having helped me to finally read my first book on my own around. 13 I suppose I really got into it about 15 maybe and then I was still reading things that were much simpler from my time so I only really read books I really wanted to read when I was about 19 and 20. She actually decided you know because you know I'll reel forward okay so my first day of secondary school and um, this podcast is gonna be way over 10 minutes um so my first day of secondary oh, school oh yeah and <laughs> um, first secondary school was um a, we were asked to write a piece in English class. Uh, I wrote it stupidly. I uh, didn't ask anybody around me to correct it or how to spell certain things. And I, my work was instantly pulled aside to leave for what was termed veggie English. And I had, and this all took place in front of the class. And I had a stand-up row with the English teacher and the remedial teacher where I refused to leave the room because I told them that I was going to university and that I needed honours English to go to university and do what I wanted to do. And the English teacher, to give her a due, um, stood up for me and said that if I wanted to learn and I wanted to be in the room, I should stay in the room. So I stayed in the room for the <laughs> six years. And I did honours English. Um, and when it then, we reel forward, um, I managed to get through my junior cert and I didn't really look for a lot of concessions. There was a lot of different things going on at the time. 
Um, I did okay. I didn't do as brilliantly as I should have done, you know. Your I, leaving cert was brilliant. Yeah, well, I, I did okay in my junior cert. I was the only person in the whole school to get an A in history. Um, because I, I got an A in history yeah. and geography uh, in my yeah. inter cert. So I did But the, the only time I ever saw it. Uh, so I did the first year of the junior cert. Um, they messed up the paper. You were only supposed to do two or three revolutions. Um, my philosophy on dyslexia was always that because it was so hard for me to get the material on the page, I always had more material. So I did all three revolutions and the question was the comparison of the three revolutions. <laughs> so I was sorted. So even the history teacher's daughter didn't get an A and she never forgave me for it because I got the only A in the school. Um, so I did I did well in history. Uh, my geography grade fell down, which it shouldn't have. My English grade You was hit the good. microphone again. Sorry. My English grade was good. Um, my art grade was good. My science grade was excellent. My maths grade was very good. Um, I failed Irish. the only time I've ever failed an exam. Um, I stayed in honours Irish and I failed it, unfortunately. Um, so then when we rail forward again to my, my leaving cert, the self-same remedial teacher, who I'd refused to go to the class, oh. um, had a stand-up row with me in the corridor and refused to put my name forward for um, a reader for my leaving cert. Because at this point, you know, it, it wasn't about me getting through the leaving cert. It was about me going to university. And so I, I, you know, I needed help to get the points. And she said that I no longer had a problem that I had done far too well and that the help was for people who had real problems, right? <laughs> so, so, so by working... You can't say that on this podcast. Sorry. By working myself to the bone and doing three times more work than everybody else... I was then penalised for it. And I had a psychologist assessment written at the time that basically said that, you know, that I wasn't being a typical teenager. I should be going out and getting drunk and um, carrying on and not really bothering to work as hard as I was working, that I, I was trying to achieve something beyond me. And actually, the person who had helped me to learn how to read had the same assessment, which I find very hurtful. And I see her on the street quite often, and it's why I don't talk to her. Um, <laughs> don't hold back there well it's actually it's something that it's taken me a long time to understand that for some people the student cannot grow bigger than the teacher mm, okay and, and it's very hurtful for for anybody who's been there and I will never do it to any of my students they can never grow too big or achieve too much or their goals can never be too high for me um, but my goals became too high for everybody um and so we I should see you now and look what you plan. Holy wow. So, so I, um, I then, I, I did get a reader for my leaving cert, but only by doing an appeal process. And I met this woman from the Department of Education, head psychologist, chief bottle washer, because she was doing the appeal. And, Is that uh, the technical term, chief bottle, bottle washer? Yeah. For our international audience. Yeah. <laughs> and, um. So I, I went in with my CV, and yes, I had a CV. Resume. Yeah, so I, I had that, even at 17. So did I. And it was quite thick, and it had all these, like, um, supporting reference letters glowing about Well, you started well. getting paid as a teacher at 12, and I started in Radio 13. Yeah, so, so I'd done a huge amount of work experience. And so I met this woman, and she told me that going to university was, to quote, beyond my status, and that I should be a shop assistant, a hairdresser, or most ridiculously, a secretary, bearing in mind that I still couldn't spell. And this process actually meant that I had to do my oral exams before this was decided. So I did my German oral and I couldn't read anything in the room. 
And then most ridiculously, I had to do my Irish oral where you actually had to read a passage of prose. And I actually had to sit there and I couldn't read any of it. So the guy who, the examiner, read the line and I repeated it after him. And we did about a paragraph. We were supposed to do about a page, but he couldn't cope anymore. And then he moved on to the general questions and I just started talking. And so that was fine. So we got through it. So I did actually eventually get a reader. And uh, I did very well my leaving cert. I, I, I didn't do as well as I should have done. Oh, would you stop it? Well, uh, your leaving cert is ridiculous. You had won the highest leaving certs in Ireland that year. Yes, but I was unhappy with my English grade because my English grade was always um, consistently a B and I did not get a B. I actually did better in honours German than in honours English. And I know that I was penalised from my writing. Um, and I was quite upset about that. Well, right? if we work out how many 100% more points you got than me. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Anyway, so I didn't get the points for what I wanted to do, um, which was medicine. I said to everybody I wanted to be a doctor. I think it was out of principle because everybody told me I couldn't do it. Um, I did a series of interviews that were quite amusing where I had the panel debating of, over whether a dyslexic could actually be a doctor. That was always very entertaining. I did at least three interviews where that happened. Um, and then I spent a year doing A-levels because I didn't want to repeat. If I'd repeated the leaving cert here, I would have had to repeat English and it would have been a new English course because it would have been a new yeah, Shakespeare Yeah, I play. ended up repeating English at college. Yeah, Um so, so I did physics, chemistry and biology, which turned out to be a spectacularly good move on my behalf because in school, to a certain degree, I'd always had to stay within the remit of how other people wanted me to work, which meant that I had to do a lot of additional work in the background always. And, and this is one of the things that I stop people from doing now. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it means writing letters to schools to stop people doing it. So that year gave me the confidence to completely work in a sort of a third level environment with complete flexibility the way I needed to. So I had stacks of tapes everywhere in my bedroom. Now I did record a lot of lessons in school, but actually a lot of people gave me gave me jip about doing it. It was so funny because we were on the opposite sides of the country and with the exact same tape recorders. Yeah. So I, I had stacks of tapes, I had a colour-coded system for them all, and that was how I did my A-levels. And I had a reader for my A-levels as well. So when I actually, eventually, that year, I read um, an article about um, oceanography and the Oceanography Centre setting up in Southampton. Um, so I decided that marine science would be good for me to do because I always liked applying knowledge. I didn't want to and just And you always do... play it down. I mean, this was seen as the premier oceanography institute on the planet at that time. Yeah, so I, I went to Galway and I did marine science and I topped my year because I'd done the whole course already, um, which was really handy because I'd done it in A-levels because A-levels are slightly higher than Leaving Cert. We actually did the Leaving Cert course in three weeks in the beginning of the year, um, uh, which actually was really important for me to realise just how little's in it. So we can actually do most of the syllabuses in 35 hours, which is a week of school. I, I, I just have to find my tongue or my jaw kind of dropped. Yeah. onto the floor there um, for I, one second. I'll be back to you in a second. <laughs> I know, you know. I, I, they make it incredibly complicated and I, and I know that, that that's not going to be well received by a lot of people. Ah, but look, you know the reaction in Ireland anyway. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah, so... Um, you never appreciate where you come from, are you? No comment. Um, so I... 
trudged through my degree. Um, it was actually quite nice. It was the first time I arrived anywhere and someone asked me, how can we help you? So I not only had a reader for my exams, I had a scribe. What I always say to people is that it didn't determine whether I got through my degree, but it did determine that I got a first at the end of it, um, which was quite amazing. Can I ask you a question? And will you indulge my silly question? Yeah. So for someone like you, who's very dyslexic and when your world is different from me because because you know i i see the world very visually or through words or through language or through letters you as a mathematician because you can't read that way with dyslexia you see the world through numbers or equations or patterns or or theorems or whatever it is so how do you see the world and how do you make sense of the world through mathematics differently than me um, I don't just see things through mathematics. I picked to do marine science because I wanted to be a doctor and I needed that level of education to feel whole because everybody told me the whole way along that I couldn't do it. I had been told since the age of five that I could not achieve an education. So my entire purpose for doing a PhD was to prove everybody wrong and to actually feel equal to everybody else. That's the only reason I put myself through 10 years of what I did. So as you go through your daily life, right, and because the letters are so hard for you, what's going on in your head? Is it maths is going on? What's going on in your head? Because no. I'm always trying to figure out what's going on in your head. I'm no. always, like, profoundly intrigued, actually. No, it's very visual and it's very creative for me. Um, I learned from... I got my first tape recorder when I was seven, um, um, my parents bought it for me because they thought if I listened to audiobooks it would help me to read. What it made me realise was that I could memorise the entire story, including all of the soundtrack um, and the order that everything happened in. So I learned very quickly to memorise things in, in an auditory basis of full auditory recall. And in terms of reading, one of the reasons why I say... So you're like a Mac time machine, time capsule. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and, um, and is it sequential? And I have complete, that is freaky. And I've got complete visual recall as well. I will remember where something is in a book based on where it is on the page, what side of the page it's on, what the font is, what colour it is. I find everything based on the packaging, where it was last week, um, the colours, the font. Like I'll look at posters and be able to tell you what they remind me of and so on. Um, so that's a big part of it as well. The reason I say that I still can't read is because even though I read a huge amount, I can't ever read any of the names in the books or any of the places or any of the characters or some of the adjectives. And so I know the shape of the words to match up what they are. And I read with I read contextually, which you don't have to do. So I work out the words based on what the sentence is and what it's talking about, whereas you read the words and know what the words are. Um, okay. So if I have to stand up and read out loud, I can't do that. And it's really stunted and really stuttered. And there's whole words that I can't actually whereas read. Whereas I was a news broadcaster for 15 years. Yeah, well, I, I still can't read out loud. And like quite often, like a lot of the sheets I bring along to sessions, like I've, I, you know, I totally fudge it. Like I used to teach master's students when I was when I was doing my PhD and they'd say to me, oh, how do I answer this question? And they'd be pointing to something to screen and I go, oh, well, read it out there for me. What does it say? <laughs> and they think I was just making them work through the problem. You know, I hadn't got a clue what was written on the screen. But you were able to answer the question. Yes, but I hadn't got a notion. When they'd asked you the question. Yeah. But I ain't got a notion. Um, so, and, and the more pressure you're under, so... Um, this is the visual stress. Yeah, it's not just that. It's just like I can't write a text message if anybody's talking to me. Um, 
I I can't read stuff if people are talking to me. I can't read uh, boards that are lit up at all. Uh, it depends on the font of the menus. I go to places, I meet people where I have the menu memorised and already know what I'm going to order because I quite often can't read it. Um, if we go somewhere that's got a slightly more highfalutin menu, someone will always have to read it to me, which people find really bizarre. Um, there's days I've, I've I, noticed... There's, Days, Sorry. There's days I just can't spell stuff at all. I've noticed when you, it doesn't matter what country you go into, when you walk into a bank and you explain to someone whatever they need filled in and you explain that I'm dyslexic, can you help me out? And then they see that you're a doctor. They look at you like you have 10 heads. Yeah, people can't get their head around this at all. They, they really can't. They, they can't. And I've had some horrible experiences like where I've had, you know, in the past where I've had to have bank drafts made out to people and... I, I don't know how to spell the who I need it made out to and yeah banks are incredibly uh, dyslexic phobic they they really they're they're appalling and the new systems and the new computerized systems are even worse um for people they've made absolutely no allowances for anybody that can't cope and actually um one of the things that's most difficult to use is um is uh, card machines when you have to pay and um, particularly in restaurants, I can't use those at all because there's always a lot of questions. Because POS, or, uh, yeah, POS, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, yeah, sure. Okay. And there's no system to them. They're not the same, so they're all different. So that's incredibly traumatic. And again, it's an environment with a lot of noise. There's an environment with pressure, somebody standing over you. There's a time frame to do something. And they just expect you to know how to work it. People expect people to be literate all the time. You know, that, that that's one of the most difficult things. The same with, I mean, you know, when, when we travel or you're on the road, you're in an airport and you pop in for a coffee or something to eat or whatever and they've got these lit up boards and it might as well be Swahili for you. No, and, and there's an entire panic that sets in because I'm just like, I can't cope with this. I haven't got a clue. Um, and actually, you know, the funny thing is that my, my, my reading of English, it's the same for me if we go to France, Spain, Italy or wherever, um, even Germany, um, Holland. The shapes of the words, I can memorise all the shapes. I still can't read any of them outside, mm -hmm. but I can actually, I can read a menu in another language as well as I can read it in English, which is quite bizarre. Wow. Because I've memorised the shapes of the words. And actually, sometimes on the continents, it's easier because the shapes of the words make more sense to me. And because they're more foreign, um, the actual structure and the way that they look looks so different to English that it's actually easier to learn. Well, this was starting out as a wee little 10-minute conversation. And if you press your... Yeah, we're, we're almost on 30 minutes. Right, right, so there's one thing I would like to finish up on, right? The most upsetting aspect for me, um, I gave my first public talk on being dyslexic when I was 22. It was quite difficult to do. Again... And a newspaper featured, as you were telling me. Yeah, and there wasn't dyslexics in university. So first of all, so um, when I did the Irish system, all you're entitled to do in Ireland is to pass your leaving cert as dyslexic. I was never entitled to do well. In the UK, when I went to do A-levels, they wanted to know why I was doing A-levels because you can drop out of GCSE and why are you here, right? Um, Lovely, charming. Yeah, yeah, so when I got to university, the university I went to was particularly good. So it was a good attitude, but people were still like, I still had people... I had the professor of chemistry tell me that there was no point giving me his notes because I would never do anything in life. And I had the professor of the biology department tell me that there was no point in her giving me my notes because I didn't deserve to be in her lecture if I couldn't write them, quote unquote. 
When I got classy to, chick, huh? Yeah. When I got to the end of my PhD, having got a first, having got a brilliant leaving cert, having got A levels, having got through school, having got through everything, I actually sat in a room and I had someone lecture me on the pyramids of education and how I didn't deserve to be there doing a PhD because I couldn't write the way they wanted me to. So this is one of the most it's an ongoing battle, so. It's one of the most hurtful aspects because no matter what you achieve and what you do, you're never good enough. And I've always found that very odd. And I find it very odd why there's so many dyslexic people that are successful in so many walks of life, and yet we still have no expectation. So the one thing that I would fundamentally like to change in every school system throughout the world of all of the people I work with is that there is an expectation of dyslexic people to do well. It's gas, really, isn't it? Because now you look at your career and the amount, the volume of people you get to help because it's you know, it's a country or it's a government or it's a health service or it's an education department in a country or it's, you know, um, the people who rule a country. It's like, it's like, I don't know, is it because we're underdogs? Is that what drives us? Because someone said we couldn't do it. Well, I've done everything because people said I couldn't do it. Well, I'm pretty much the same. But there was a bizarre moment, I remember, when I set up the school and I think it was around Christmas and I had... Um, you know, told a lot of people how they were getting on and I sort of said to them, you know, you know, the parents to drop in and chat to me if they wanted to, you know. And I ended up with this hallway of people <laughs> queued up to talk to me. And I was just like, why do they all want to talk to me? Brilliant. But, you know, it was that bizarre moment where you sit there and go, oh, okay. How many people right now do you think you've impacted around the world? I have no idea. People ask me that question. I, I don't keep score. I don't know. That's such a shame. You should. I know, and, and this is one of the hard bits because it still goes back to those ages between six and eight and even though I grew up in an idyllic home and everything was possible and I've achieved so much, someone told me at a very formidable age that I wasn't worth anything. And it never leaves you? No. That hurts. Yeah, and we'll end there. Thank you for being so honest. Of course. It dragged on, listeners. I apologise, but thanks for bearing with us. This has been episode 41 of Purple Psychology. If you'd like to find out more or to maybe join the queue in the hall via email or whatever it is to have a, a chat with me so I can act as buffer zone for Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, do get in touch. There's a multitude of websites if you want to, I guess, Google Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Nisha N-A-O-I-S-E. She gets noise quite a lot, but N-A-O-I-S-E, O'Reilly, O apostrophe, R-E-I-L-L-Y, if that helps, O apostrophe, R-E-I-L-L-Y, and I'm sure you'll come across contact information. I'm usually the buffer zone. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by 365 Success app. Search 365 Success, all one word, in the app store. Thanks for listening. Nisha, thank you for being here. Thank you. 365 Success app offers a simple daily tip for a more balanced life. 365 Success is a one-year plan over six levels where a new tip is displayed each day. The people behind 365 Success are academic and creative life hackers Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Graham Hughes and Marie O'Reardon. Discover 365 Success, available now in the App Store.